Okay, so the last couple of weeks we had our vision weekends. And our vision weekends is when we spend two weeks looking to the future. What is God calling us to? Where is uh, God sort of like, what, what's the future look like? What's the next 12 months look like? Um, as we uh, look to the future, we felt like this is what we felt God was calling us to, is this by invitation, only being a people of invitation. And then what we do is in the second week of vision, uh, we give um, you guys the opportunity and all of us together as a team, as a church, the opportunity to give and sow into this vision. So we first week talk about what we're going to do, talk about what we feel like God is leading us towards. And the second week, it's kind of like the, are we in or are we not? Um, and that's not necessarily a, if you give, you're in. And if you don't give, you're not in. Don't hear me say that at all. But it's an opportunity to say, look, I'm in this. I'm behind it. I see what, what God's doing. I want to be part of that. So um, without further ado, to announce just how much was given. And uh, I always love this because to me, this is, this is twofold. It shows that there's a group of people in this church that are passionate about what God is doing. And then also, God can use what it is that is given. So over the past six days, um, from uh, Sunday through till last night, a total of £15,780 was given by us, the church. Oh, you're quiet. Can we show some love and appreciation for that this morning? I'm dead excited. 15,000, nearly, nearly 16,000 pounds. That'll go up a little bit when the last few sort of gift day claims go in. But I'm just super encouraged by this. Some of you might be like, oh, that's not a lot of money. Some of you might be like, wow, that's a lot of money. To me, it was never about the amount in the first place. But it was so good to see. Like I said, I don't see who gives what, but I can just see who gives in that sense. And it was so encouraging just to see people get behind this and be like, I'm in. I want to be part of this. And just chatting to some of you who said, look, I'm really sorry. I, I can't get involved in this and even still super encouraging to hear how this vision has resonated with you and we don't celebrate you know nearly 16,000 pounds just because it's money we don't celebrate it because it means we can buy stuff or do things and for transparency the way we operate as a church is the sort of faithful giving or the tithe of, of us the church pays for our operations, you know, the venue and staff and all the stuff that we have to pay for to keep us running. And then these vision offerings go towards the things that we're going to be setting up in this coming year, some of the things that we're going to be doing from, you know, paying for a youth pastor or for, you know, starting up some new ministries or some new initiatives. So all of that goes into that. And uh, I'm just really, really excited because it means that, uh, that God is moving in his people. Because people don't want to get involved in things that God is not moving in. You can look around churches around the world, and if God is not moving, guess what happens? People leave. People don't want to be part of it. But I'm just encouraged to know that God is doing something here. So uh, I want to celebrate that. I want to say thank you for your generosity. Thank you for your partnership and your support. And I just say watch this space. I believe God is going to do some amazing things this year. And uh, through your faithfulness, through our faithfulness, um, I really think that we will see our friends and family sat in these seats, not because it's bums on seats, but because people need to hear the life-transforming message of Jesus. That's what I believe. So what we're going to do is uh, over the next couple months and stuff, you'll hear little updates and us referring back to vision and how we can really get that going. But uh, for now, we're going to jump straight into this new series, A Beautiful Alternative. A Beautiful Alternative. This is really about what does it mean to be a community 
What does it mean to be a people that live their lives in such a way that offers a beautiful alternative than the way that the world lives? That's what I believe that we as a church, that Christians around the world are called to be. They're called to be people that live their lives in such a way in which they offer a beautiful alternative of how to live and how to, how to walk and how to love and how to relate to people. So we're going to spend around four weeks looking at this beautiful alternative, some of the ways in which we're called to live. Have you ever been on holiday or ever been you know, on like a camping trip or you ever maybe been to the beach or places like this where you see lots of people and you look around and you look at the way people do things. So like maybe it's, it's holiday, maybe you're the type of person who likes to sit around a pool and I, I never really did that growing up. We did a lot of like camping and caravanning and stuff like that, a lot of surfing and sort of that type of thing. And when I got married to Holly, we went on this, this sort of sit around the pool type holiday. I didn't know that there was like pool etiquette, right? I didn't know that there was like a way that people did, did the pool thing. So you see people get there super early in the morning to put their towels on the, on the chair thing. And now, apparently, universally, that means this chair thing is taken, right? There's an etiquette to this thing. And you ever, you ever been in those moments and you look at people and you watch the way that they're doing things and you go like, wow, yeah, they're doing that all right. Happens usually when you're at the beach, especially in this country. There are some families when they go to the beach. And I've seen this time and time again where they, it looks like they just got one of those, you know, those massive sort of checkered plastic bag things that people would get. And they, they fill them full of just random junk that you got to take to the beach, right? And it's usually the, the dad who is like packed up like a, like a mule. And like the kids have run off down the little path. Like the mom has got like a coffee and the dad's like just like struggling down, down the path, down the stairs to get down to the beach. And you look at that and you go like, oh, I don't want that. That's not my style at all. And then there's the other side of it where you look at people and you've got, you've got this super like, you know, conscientious family who, who like have a little portable barbecue thing and everyone's got a little fold out seat and they've got like a fancy picnic table that folded out from a crate. And like you look at they've brought like a portable toilet and they've got like a, you know, they've got a full table spread and they've got classical music playing out on the beach. And, and you look at these people and you'd be like, those guys know how to do it. Like they got it. Maybe, it. maybe it's not the beach. Maybe it's just in general life. You can look at people in their life and you can go, wow, they really know how to do it. They, they, really, got, they really got this thing together. Not, maybe not life in general, but maybe just a specific thing. Wow, they really know how to do this. If you're on social media, you'll be familiar with this, but this, this viral trend that has been around since the beginning of social media, these things called life hacks. Has anyone heard of a life hack? So a life hack is a video that essentially shows you how to do something really simple in a more effective and efficient way. Now, I don't know what it is, but humans cannot get enough of these videos. It is like it shows you how to like take the little grim, like, 
stringy thing out of a chicken breast. Like you never knew how to do this before. Now you know how to do it. Or teaches you how to, I don't know, waterproof your trousers or just some random life hack. But humans just can't get enough of it. And the problem with it is, is it never is really, it's not like a jealousy thing. We don't watch these videos and we don't see these people out on the beaches or in life. We're not, it doesn't cause us to feel jealous. It's more of a like an admiration, like an appreciation, like, ah, they really know how to do this. So you watch these, these ridiculous life hacks. Some of them go way too far. You think, wow, that's actually really good. I actually really appreciate I really admire that. And you're not there like, ah, I can't do that in, in my life. You're more like, ah, oh, that is cool. I really appreciate that. And the thing is about our lives as Christians, if you are a follower of Jesus, your life the way that you live, the way that you talk, the way that you conduct yourself, the way that you go about living your life should have that very same reaction to people around you. Not a reaction of jealousy of like, why are they always like that? And sometimes that happens and that's not really down to you. But more often than not, when you are going about your life and things turn upside down and you, through the power of God, have peace in your life, or when things are a little bit crazy and you're stressed, yet you can still be kind to people and love people. And people can look at your life and go, wow, what, what, is, it about these, what is it about them? There's just like an admiration that's stirred up in them. There, there's like an appreciation that's stirred up in people. Like, how is it that they can do this? How, why is it that they seem to be able to live this way? That's really the call of our lives as Christians is to live a life that causes people to be stirred with admiration and go, how is it that they can be so calm, peaceful, loving, kind, gentle, whatever it is? The Bible teaches us that we live in a world that is, that is bent towards destruction or bent towards self-sabotage. I mean, like, you can look at human history for five minutes, and you could not argue that humans have this inherent leaning towards the good. Okay, you would look at human history and go, like, wow, humans are brutal people. We are, we are crazy beings in that sense. We have this desire to sabotage and tear down and destroy. But ultimately, God has placed his people, followers of Jesus, in our worlds to offer a different way to live, to offer a completely different alternative, a beautiful alternative to the way of the world. That is the core of us as Christians. If you are in here and you call yourself a follower of Jesus, it is your responsibility to live a life of beauty that offers the world an alternative to the way that they're living. And if you're in here this morning, you think, well, I don't believe in God. I'm not really a Christian. Hold on, because I really believe that God wants to speak to you that God can do something through your life. And again, this alternative way that we, we have to offer the world isn't to cause people to feel bad about themselves, which some Christians have got that under their skin for a bit, haven't they? Like, it's their goal to show everyone how bad they are so that then they would realize. But no, it's our job to show people the way it is that we can really be human, the way that we can actually live our lives. So what does this look like? We're going to jump through a couple Bible passages and then we're going to sit in one passage for a little bit today. I want us to look at how we can be a people that offer a beautiful alternative. And typically, typically, 
the found, we're going to look at the foundational thing. And typically in the Bible, this is where people go to when we talk, what, what makes us distinct as Christians? What sets us apart from the world? That's okay. Jesus is quite explicit about this one. So when we say what sets Jesus' followers uh, aside or, or apart from the world's followers, how, how does that look? In John chapter 13, verse 35, this is what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So Jesus is very clear. If you want to be seen as my followers, it is going to be seen in the way that you love one another. Not necessarily in just the music you listen to or what you wear or what you say or whatever, but his foundational distinction is it's in the way that you love one another. So this is interesting. I know the context of this passage is specifically between Christians. So the context is Jesus saying to a group of believers, his disciples, the way that you treat one another is a demonstration to the world of something special that goes on. It's the same to us as the church. The way we treat each other as the church is a huge demonstration to the world of how we're different. Okay, that's actually the context. But, but let's zoom out a little bit. It's this essence of love. Jesus is saying it is love that is going to set you apart from those around you that do not, do, who do not believe in me. It is love that will set you apart. So why should we love if it's love that's going to be the major distinction for us, why should we love? Why is this foundational to our example? Why is love the thing that Jesus used to separate us from other people? Let's go to 1 John chapter 4, 19. And this is what it says. It says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. But plain and simple, 1 John 4, 19. We love because he loved us. So the, the core distinction of being a Christian, of being a follower of Jesus, is to understand that we are to love others and we are to love God, not because we came first, but because God first loved us. So this whole essence of love, this whole distinction of love is actually in response to a God who loves us. It all comes from him. It says in the Bible in 1 John a little bit later on that God is love. And if you love, you are in him. So this core distinction comes from the fact that God himself loves you. And your response to that is to love others and to love him. So a little bit back in that 1 John passage. How do we know what love is, why should we love, why is it foundational? Well, he says he loved, uh, we love because he loved us. And then it says this, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. How profound is that? The very nature of human beings, our very capacity that we have to love one another, to love in its deepest sense, comes from the fact that we came from an all-loving God. That God himself is love. That we can love because we have been loved. I know this can be mind-bending, but we'll get there in a second. How do we know that we are loved how do we know that God loves us, aside from the fact that he made us, aside from the fact that, 
we're here, aside from the fact that we have what we have. Okay, but that doesn't always float in every circumstance, does it? Because you could say, well, I'm an atheist and I'm here. I'm an atheist, I have what I have. How does that mean God loves me? The Bible teaches us we know we are loved because we're forgiven. Okay, we know we are loved by God because He forgave us. That 1 John 4, 9 to 10 says that this is love. We know love because God sent Himself, sent His Son to die as a sacrifice for you and me, to take our place. Okay, God sacrificed Himself so that you and I could be forgiven and set free. So that you and I might have access to be the people that God has made us to be. That's how we know what love is. We, we can see that Jesus gave himself for us to forgive us. How do we know we are loved? Forgiveness. So then I want to ask the question, well, what's the fruit of forgiveness in our life? If love is to be this, this distinctive characteristic and we know we're loved because we've been forgiven of our sin and we receive grace... How, how do we know that what's the, what's the forgiveness thing in our life? Well, the fruit of forgiveness in our life is what? Love. We know we are loved because God forgives us. And when we know we are forgiven, it breathes love in our life. Fruit, the fruit of forgiveness is love. So I want us to look at this today. If this is a key distinctive for us. How can we be fueled by love? If, if we want to be a people that offer the world a beautiful alternative, if we want to live our lives in such a way, compelled by love, that the world looks at us and says, I don't know what it is, but that's what I want. If we want to be those people, how do we be those people? How can we actually be compelled by love in our life? We're going to go to Luke chapter 7. Verse 36 to 50. Luke 7, 36 to 50. So if you want to read with me. This is a story about how Jesus is anointed by a sinful woman. I love this passage and it's really powerful. We're going to just take a few observations from this. And then we're going to offer some ways for you and I to get involved in this. So Luke 7, 36 to 50. It says, When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eaten at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And she stood behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man was really a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Verse 40 says, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered 
has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not pour oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her man, though her many sins, she is forgiven, as great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So this is a really, really powerful passage. And a little bit of background to this, and then we're going to jump into it. Is Jesus would have been at the synagogue. So he would have been either there listening to other teachers or teaching himself. And Jesus had been going around. He'd been preaching about the kingdom of God. He'd been talking a little bit about who he was. And if you were to go to Matthew chapter 6 or so, you would see that Jesus begins to teach people. And he says to me, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. And he begins to essentially, this is the kingdom of God. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And this woman, who was a sinful woman, she would most probably, scholars believe, that is the message that she would have responded to. That's where Jesus came from. It was the same town. It's probably where they would have ended up. So she responded to this message, and Jesus is at this synagogue, and it says one of, the, one of the rabbis, one of the teachers, Simon, invited Jesus back to his house. Again, not uncommon. It was a pretty normal thing to do is for rabbis to invite other rabbis back to their house. So you've got this like big banquet, this big party. The way that these things worked, they would often be in courtyards of these houses, which means that people in the public could see in. But also, it meant that people from the public could actually just walk in if they wanted to. So it wouldn't be uncommon for there to be a dinner party with people reclining on these little sofa things that would be on the floor and for random people to be walking through. So this woman, who it says she is a sinful woman, in some versions it says she was a woman of the city. In other words, she was a prostitute. So this was a woman who would sell her body for, se for sex, for money. And she was seen as the lowest of the low. Okay, She was an unclean woman to the teachers at the time. She would have been a social outcast of the time because she sold her body. And she goes into this party. And after responding to this message of Jesus, this whole story that we read unfolds. And you can imagine you've just come from the synagogue. There are all these people who believe that they are the holiest of holies beneath God. You have this, this setup where they'd been in the temple. They'd been talking about things that they believed really mattered. And you've got this Jesus guy here who's making some pretty crazy claims about being God and doing some miracles and some crazy signs and wonders. And, and the, the rabbis at the time would have been a little bit on the back foot. And these would have been Pharisees as well. So like they knew, they knew the Torah. They knew the word. They knew the law inside and out. They spent every day training in it. They would have known what God would have expected of people. So they invite Jesus in. We don't see that there's any underlying agenda from Simon. We don't think that this is a trap. All we know is that Jesus was at the table with Pharisees. And this woman, this unclean woman, which women didn't speak to rabbis anyway. Like this just wasn't a done thing in that way. Not only a woman, but an unclean woman, a prostitute, walks into the Pharisee's home in the midst of that whole context. Now, I love the fact that Jesus engages with her. 
And we see that Jesus uses this woman's life, this woman's story, to offer the context, the people listening to him at the time, to offer the Pharisees a beautiful alternative to the way that they see the world and to the way that they live. And I think if we lean into this this morning, we can take this very same message that Jesus is teaching the Pharisees and we can put it into practice in our own lives. So we're going to look at the beautiful alternative, the beautiful alternative being a life of love that will make us distinct from the world. So let's walk through this passage, see what we can learn from it. First observation I want to make this morning is this. The beautiful alternative begins with the ugly truth. The beautiful alternative begins with the ugly truth. So this woman would have responded to this message of Jesus. She would have heard that there is forgiveness for sin available. She would have heard that there was grace that could be extended to her. She would have heard that the way that she was living was not right and that she needed to repent, turn around and face Jesus. So she goes in verse 37. You see that she is moved, like deeply, deeply moved. She's weeping. She's on her knees. She throws all dignity out the window. She's crying and in a strange turn of events, begins to wet Jesus' feet with her tears. That's a lot of tears. Wiping his dirty feet with her hair. Again, it's like the lowest view, losing all dignity. It's a pure sign of humility, almost an abandonment of self. She just wasn't bothered what people thought about her. She was deeply moved and she had a deep awareness of her sin. A deep awareness of her sin. Interestingly enough, in verse 39, we see Simon actually confirms how sinful she was. In his mind, he's thinking if Jesus was really a prophet, he would know just how bad she is. Not only is a woman touching him on the Sabbath or touching him after being in the temple, a prostitute, an unclean, sinful woman. And even Jesus himself in verse 47 He says, her sins, though they are many. Okay, so there is absolutely no hiding going on for this woman in this passage. There's no one saying she was sort of a bad person. There was no one saying she was bad, but she had loads of potential. Or no one was saying like she's made some mistakes in her life, but there was no hiding. This woman faced her sin straight on. The Bible makes it very, very clear that she really was a sinner. This is not a story of of someone being accused of sin and then being let off. It is a story of an unclean sinner and her life intersecting with Jesus, her life crashing into Jesus. The Bible makes it very, very clear. This woman knows that she is sinful. The Bible paints this picture that she is so deeply moved by her sin that she's weeping and she's throwing herself on the floor. No hiding, no pretending. For us, when it comes to talking about us living a life that is a beautiful alternative, one that is a compelling, a vibrant alternative to the way that the world lives, the first place that we need to start is with the ugly truth. That we can look at the story of this unclean woman and almost maybe even sit in the seat of the Pharisees and be like, I'm not like that. I'm I'm not 
selling my body and I'm not doing that and I'm not engaging in those things. And you can hear us, you can hear Christians around the world reading this passage being like, so unclean, just like Simon was, if only Jesus knew how dirty she was. But really, the beginning of this journey for you and I starts with the ugly truth that you and me are just like that woman. Born into sin, our nature fallen, bent towards destruction and sabotage. Before we met Jesus, our lives were just the same on the same chaos path towards nowhere. We need to recognize that we are just as sinful as that woman is. That when we read this story, that when we judge and when we look down on her, we are that woman. The beautiful alternative begins with the ugly truth. The sooner we face the reality of what our fallen nature will point us towards, the sooner we can actually move forward. You cannot heal it if you deny that you have it. In the Bible times, they would look at sin not as like a, a, a legal crime. So, you know, today we might have the view that when we sin, it's like, you know, we've, we've committed a crime and there's a punishment for that, for that crime. That's how a lot of us will view sin. I've done something wrong, therefore I've stepped over the line. And the thing with, with crime is that there are, so we, we can like level crime, right? Oh, I speed a little bit, I do this a little bit, but like I don't do any of the hard crimes. And that same view can be projected onto sin, right? When we think about from like a judicial perspective. I'm not such a bad sinner. I only do this and this and this, but I'm not. But you see, in antiquity, in the Bible, they didn't see sin as a judicial crime. They saw it as a sickness. Okay, They looked at sin not as just something you did wrong, but as something that's physically wrong in the makeup and DNA of who you are. Something that is completely twisted and something that will grow if not dealt with. If you read the book of James, it says, Confess your sin to one another so that you may be healed. They saw sin as almost like a cancer that would grip our souls. And the thing is, I wonder with you and I today, do we have levels of sickness in our life or do we just go, I'm sick and I need to do something about it? We don't go, I'm okay with putting up a little bit of sickness in my life. We just have a different view of it. So when we look at sin in our life, when we understand that we cannot heal, we cannot move forward, we cannot be who God has made us to be if we fail to recognize that we are depraved and we are in need of the grace of Jesus through what he did on the cross. It is the beginning of us offering the world a beautiful alternative, is to recognize the reality that we need to be forgiven every single day. Yes, when we say yes to Jesus, we are given a new nature, we are given a new creation, and it is about living up to that and living out of that. But we need to also face the reality that our body wants things that our spirit wants the opposite of. The beginning of the beautiful alternative is to face the ugly truth. And this woman did this in this passage. The Bible shows she faced up to her sin. She owned it. She knew it was there and she wanted to do something about it. The second thing we see is the beautiful alternative will always be fueled by forgiveness. The beautiful alternative will be fueled by forgiveness. Verse 41, 41 to 43 says this. A certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. 
When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Jesus is trying to, uh, trying to get Simon to understand something here. He is saying, look, when you face up to your sin, you face up to your need for Jesus, then when you are forgiven, it breeds love in your life because you understand what you've been freed from. That when you are forgiven of the sin that you acknowledge in your life, it breeds love and it breeds joy and it breeds worship in your life because you know I've been freed from something. I've been forgiven. But ultimately, we see Simon in this really, really interesting moment. He in himself believes that he is holy. He's a Pharisee. He believes that he has it all together. He believes that he is following the law. I don't know if there was arrogance there that he believed that he was better than everyone else, but he definitely would have had a belief that he is cleaner and holier than others. And what does Jesus say? He says, interesting, well, when I walked into your house, you didn't even follow your own law. The Jewish law at the time said that to be hospitable to guests, especially rabbis, they would give them water to wash their feet. They would kiss them on the cheek as a sign of honor, and they would anoint their head with oil to say, you are welcome here and you are an honored guest. Jesus said, you did none of those things. In your own spiritual pride, you are blind to your own rules. You can't even measure up to your own crooked way. But this woman who came here acknowledging her sin crawls into this space with a humble heart and says, I need forgiveness. And interestingly, Jesus parallels the two. She cleaned my feet. She anointed me and she kissed me showing that the heart set of this woman actually fulfilled the very thing that this Jewish Pharisee, this Jewish teacher was saying that she was unclean from. I love the irony of the Bible, showing us that actually the heart of this woman was what Jesus was after. See, when you deny sin in your life, when you say, I'm not actually so bad, then ultimately you're moving away from the need for a Savior. You say, I'm not so bad. I don't really need the full blood of Jesus in my life. I'm, I'm not such a bad sinner. We actually step away from the need for a Savior in our life. Ultimately, what happens? We don't grow. We don't see the fruit of love in our life. We don't see the fruit of peace in our life. We don't see this fruit that comes from the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. To understand in our life that it was our sin that nailed Jesus to a cross. Not some far removed person 2,000 years ago's sin. It was our sin, your sin, my sin that pinned Jesus to a cross. And it was because of that that Jesus went through that, that you and I can receive forgiveness. When we fail to acknowledge sin in our life, we also fail to acknowledge the need for a Savior. And we cannot live a life of love. We cannot offer a beautiful alternative. The beautiful alternative is always fueled by forgiveness. Whereas pride will always blind you. I'm going to invite the team up. You can come join me. 
I believe that we all have a responsibility in our life to conduct ourselves, to offer the world something different. Your coworkers, your family members, your friends need to see your life looking differently. They need to look at your life and say, how is it that they can be like that? And look what Jesus says here. The final thing is a beautiful alternative is always an overflow of love. It's always an overflow of love. Verse 47, look what Jesus says. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much. You might be like, Dan, this was a heavy morning. We're just chatting about how bad we are and sin. And now I hope that's not what you've heard this morning. Because the beginning of this journey is to recognize that, yes, we are sinful. But if we acknowledge our sin, it says in Psalm, I think 105, it says he is abounding in love and he is ready to forgive us. It's almost as though God is sat there with his hand out, ready to forgive. If you would just say, sorry, I will forgive you. Abounding in love and ready to forgive. Is that you might be sat here being like, this is heavy. I feel so bad about myself. Well, the good news is it is not about you. It is not based on you. It is not about your performance. It is all about what Jesus did for us. And there is forgiveness available for you and for me. And that the overflow of that forgiveness, the demonstration of that forgiveness, is that we would love much. Some people take this to mean that she loved much, therefore she was forgiven. That's not what this means. It says in verse 50, actually, it's your faith that saved you. It's the same for you and I. If you and I have faith, believe that Jesus is who he said he is, and he did what he said he did, that you and I can be saved from ourselves and be given the gift of forgiveness, that we may abound in love, that we may grow in love, that our lives may be marked distinctively by love warm, fuzzy feelings, or just kind words, or in, in interesting Pinterest and Instagram pictures that tell people that God loves them, but a life set on fire, fueled by forgiveness, compelled by love to show the world a different way. It starts with acknowledging our need for Jesus. And that starts by saying, we are sinful and we need a Savior. The world needs a church that is set on fire, marked distinctively by its love. Love for one another, love for God, love for the world. The only way we will get there is to recognize that we, are, we fall short. And I want to offer us an opportunity today. Us as, if you are a follower of Jesus, us as agents of his love in this world. Maybe you feel like, I don't know, I just feel so like God can't really use my life. I just feel like I've messed up too many times. I feel like my life is too far gone. I feel like this shame on my shoulders, like I just keep making the same mistakes. and I just don't feel like I've got a grip on it. How could God use me? How could God use my life? Well, God can use your life because he wants to forgive you. That's the whole point of this. Don't let those voices in your head tell you you are not good enough. It's actually the acknowledgement that you are not good enough that allows God to use you in the end. Face it. We need 
Jesus because we are broken and sinful in our nature. And when we say yes to Jesus, we can live according to who he has called us to be. With every head bowed and eyes closed, maybe you're in here today and you have never said yes to Jesus before. I want to give you the opportunity to say yes to him, to respond to that message of faith, to respond to that gospel of truth and love, that God loved you so much that he gave himself for your life. And then I want to offer an opportunity for us as followers of Jesus in this room to respond to that same feeling of, I want to offer the world a beautiful alternative some sin in my life that is holding me back. Church, it's time to face the ugly truth so we can offer a beautiful alternative. In 1 John 4, 16 to 18, it says, God is love. Whoever lives, whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment, but the one who fears is not made perfect in love. God is love. And he wants to mark you with that today. So if either of those of you, you want to say yes to Jesus for the first time, or you want to respond to that call to live a life that is a beautiful alternative to the world, I want you to raise your hand just a moment and I want to pray for you and raising a hand is just a sign between you and God and a sign between you and yourself to say I'm in I want to respond to this I want to make that a part of my life so after three either of those one two three Jesus, I want to thank you for who you are. I want to thank you that no matter how far gone our lives feel, how messed up we feel, how many times we trip and fall, God, I thank you that your mercy is new every day. And that today we have the opportunity to be forgiven and restored and given a new creation, given a new status, given the opportunity to live up to the life that you've called us to. God, I thank you for your Holy Spirit that is working right now. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would convict those parts of our life right now that maybe we've hidden away, that we don't want you to see our ugly truth. But God, we open those places to you today so that you can work in them, so we can accept forgiveness, so that we can offer the world a beautiful alternative. And ultimately, our friends and family and co-workers will see you. God, I pray for all those who responded this morning. God, I thank you for their boldness. And would you respond to that boldness today. God, I pray right now that they would just be filled up with your grace. They would be filled up with an awareness of who you are. Speak to them, Holy Spirit. Convict them right now. God, I pray over this church, may we be marked by your love, fueled by forgiveness, compelled by your spirit to share this with the world. We worship you, God. We thank you.